Why did Jesus go into the wilderness? I mean, if you were to go out to the churches around the area or some of your Bible studies here on campus, and you, or you went through the D.C., and you just asked that simple question, what are some of the responses you would get? Why did Jesus go into the wilderness? It's not a rhetorical question. I'm actually asking it. Well, what are some of the things you would hear out there in the general public? Okay, he went to the wilderness to be alone with God. That's, that's one answer I think we'd hear. What are some others? Pardon? The Spirit drove him. I don't think you'd hear that one. The funny thing is, you're right. I just didn't expect it to pop up so soon. Way to go, slam dunk. The guy's been reading his Bible. I've asked that question a lot, and the normal answers I get are wrong. Or at least, they're not exactly what the Scripture says is the reason he went in. They're probably not theologically wrong. He did go to be alone with the Lord. That was part of it. Most people say he went to suffer and to be tempted and to be tested. And certainly that is what happened when he was in the wilderness. But the the synoptic Gospels are very clear that the reason he went into the wilderness, into those 40 days of testing, was because the Spirit of the Lord, it says, drove him into the wilderness. It was the Holy Spirit that took him into the testing, that took him into the suffering, that took him into the time of fasting and aloneness with God. What did he feel like when he came out? I mean, 40 days, no food. Being uh, confronted by the devil himself on many occasions, all alone. It says in one of the Gospels that wild animals were around him. What did he feel like? What if, if again, if we just ask that question generally in in Christendom today, what would they say? At the end of those 40 days, what did Jesus feel like? What would most people say? And don't, you can't answer. Okay. (laughs) Hungry. And that's true. It says he was hungry. I'd be hungry after 40 days. It's interesting, it just says he was hungry. It doesn't make a big deal out of it. You know, we'd be famished, we'd be starving, we'd be dying on the brink of death. It just says he was hungry. What else? He'd been facing Satan all that time. He'd been under temptation and trials. What else would he have felt like after 40 days that would most people maybe say? Tired. Okay, what else? Exhausted, right? Emotionally, physically, worn down by Satan himself. That's what I would have said. And then I was reading it. And you know what it says? Right after that, it says the exact opposite. It says when he left that time, he came in to, uh, he left the wilderness and he came into the country full of the Holy Spirit. And he began to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. It's interesting. We think that a time of trial and a time of testing would mean a time of of complete exhaustion and anguish. And of course, if you weren't eating and if you were fasting and praying, of course you'd be exhausted from fasting and praying. Apparently, for Jesus, it was quite the opposite. To be alone with his Father, to be driven there by the Spirit, to face all these kinds of struggles, enlivened him in the Holy Spirit. It says he was 
full of the Holy Spirit. He'd never been so full. He'd never been so ready to begin his public work. We would have said, you need to take a little vacation, you know, get some counseling, kind of heal up from this horrible experience in the wilderness, find out, you know, some things and work them out, and then maybe six months after that, you know, you've got your health back, you start your public preaching. No, no. Just the opposite. To be with God, to be driven by the Spirit, even into struggles, means for Jesus to be full of the Holy Spirit. He comes out more enlivened because he saw the unseen. His eyes were focused on the unseen. His ears were attuned to the inaudible. And his life was completely inexplicable. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 55. He says, God is speaking. And Isaiah, the prophet, is giving us this word from the Lord. And he says this. Thus says the Lord, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. One of the mentors that I had for many years, who's now with the Lord, uh, Chaplain Dick Halverson, who was chaplain of the U.S. Senate and pastor at uh, uh, Fourth Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. for 25 years before that, this was his favorite verse. I heard him preach probably 50 different times over those years. And I would guess in 20 of them or 30 of them, he mentioned this verse. It's been driven into my heart that God's ways are not our ways. That's what we just saw. If we, if we were going to 40 days of testing, we wouldn't like it. God apparently thinks it's really important. If we went and spent 40 days alone with God, we'd feel deprived that we'd been out of social contact. Jesus and the Spirit think that that's how to get into social contact. With the most social of all beings in the universe, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's social even, even within his own being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, social, there's relationship. Our ways are not God's ways. I'd like to talk today about the Holy Spirit and about what it means to be a person of the Holy Spirit. The series we've been doing is to look into the question, what does it mean to have a good and noble heart? Because Jesus in the Gospel of Luke tells us that the people who were fruitful for his kingdom were people with good and noble hearts. And one of the things I want to say is that a person with a good and noble heart, according to the Scriptures, is a person who is growing in their, in their knowledge and experience of walking in the Holy Spirit. Walking in the Holy Ghost, if you want. And apart from that, apparently, we're not going to be good and noble. Now, the, I'm, I'm going, we're going to look into an Old Testament character in a moment. But before we do that, I'm going to ask some students to share. Because they were led somewhere last year. And probably the year before that, they would have never guessed that they would be led where they were led. Two students are going to share who last summer got on an airplane with a team of other students, and flew to Honduras. Many of them had never been to Honduras. Some of them had. And they spent, I believe, a six weeks in Honduras. They can correct me if it was more or less than that. And they were part of an eight to ten year history that Westmont College has had in being led by the Holy Spirit. Because over those eight to ten years, this family of Jesus has helped 25 different Honduran villages get safe drinking water. 
25 little cities where children were dying from the contaminated water. This family right here was led by the Holy Spirit to say, you know, we can use our minds. Some of us are engineering students. We can, we can use our, our bodies. Some of us are strong. We're going to dig some trenches. We can use our creativity. Some of us are business majors. We're going to raise the funds for this thing. And we put in, you did, this family put in 25 water systems and in 25 villages in Honduras, children are no longer dying, literally, no longer dying. We've also built, we meaning all of us as the Westmont community, one medical clinic in Guatemala that's operating today. And people who were living in poverty and could not get medical help are getting it now because some of you were led by the Holy Spirit to step outside your comfort zone. This summer, we got tired of just building clinics. We're going to build a hospital. I mean, some of the friends here were led by the Holy Spirit to think one alumna and I in particular, it got on his heart that we don't just need a little clinic in this one poor area of Guatemala. Say, we need a hospital. And so far, $30,000 was donated to buy the land. Three different other groups, an engineering group for Christ, an architecture group for Christ, and a medical group for Christ, and Westmont people are going together to build the Medical Social Association of Westmont Bethel. So it's even going to have Westmont's name on it, this four-story hospital with, I think, about 25 beds in it and a surgical room, a completely equipped hospital. Some of you may be being called by the Holy Spirit to go help make that a reality this summer. Some of you may be called to go on one of the three teams that's going to go to Honduras and do some more projects in Honduras. But I'd like you to hear from some students who I believe were led by the Spirit to do this last year. First, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce them both now, and they're going to come up with their team members. Uh, first to speak is going to be Dave Reed, who's a sophomore. He was on last year's team to Honduras and uh, also worked on Potter's Clay. And then Michelle Howell, who is also on the Honduras team. She's a senior. She's been on the Potter's Clay core staff. She is on the Potter's Clay core staff, biology major and Spanish minor. They're going to come share, but the whole team that went with them to Honduras is going to come up and be here behind them just kind of supporting them. So uh, let's welcome them all up here. As Bart mentioned, uh, my name is Dave Reed, and um, I didn't really have anything to do last summer, so uh, I was talking to my friend Crash, and uh, he said, well, I'm going to go to Honduras. You want to go? And uh, I said, yeah, that sounds like something. Uh, you know, and Bart said, some of us are engineering majors or, uh, you know, big, strong, able to dig, or Spanish majors. I'm none of those. And uh, <laughs> I thought... Well, the rice and beans for six weeks sounds good. You know, I'm, I like Mexican food. Um, turns out that's not rice and beans as we know it, but like rice and beans from the ground to your mouth, you know. Uh, so I thought, if nothing else, I can lose a little weight this summer. Um, so I think it's, it's interesting that, uh, I think that the Spirit did move me to go. Uh, I didn't know that it was happening at the time. But uh, I'll get the laser beams on my face. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
I think that the Holy Spirit did move me to go to Honduras. I, like I said, I didn't know that it was happening at the time. Um, in hindsight, I realized that that's exactly what was happening. He was, he was moving through my friend who persuaded me to go, if for no other reason, just to not go home uh, for the summer. Um, we learned quite a bit in Honduras. And um, just to give you a brief overview of what goes on, uh, we spend the time earning money, uh, fundraisers, support letters, things like that, to buy materials for a water project. Um, many villages in Honduras are dependent on water from dirty rivers or uh, dirty water sources, and the women actually carry these big jugs of water on their head. It's, I mean, they're really, you know, good, like heavy water. And, um, you know, they're walking miles to a river and bringing back dirty water for their kids. And our, our mission is to go and um, provide clean, fresh water from a, a cleaner source directly to their homes, um, you know, with faucets just like everyone has in their backyard. Um, an interesting story that I'll share real quick is um, they just opened my eyes quite a bit, and uh, I really felt like writing it down as soon as it happened, and so I did, and so I wouldn't forget about it. Um, they have two, two buildings in the village we are at. These are the poorest of the poor. Uh, these are indigenous people that are discriminated against and uh, put on a reservation, more or less. And they have mud huts with, uh, you know, grass roofs. And um, they have two structures in the entire village, and they gave one of them to us for the six weeks that we were there. You know, kicked the kids out where they were having school and uh, let us sleep there. Um, this was, you know, their biggest luxury, and they gave it to us. And about halfway through the trip... It started to rain a little bit as we were having a worship service, and um, started to rain a little harder. Wind started to blow a little. You know, we're having a good time. You know, worship service. You know, wind is good during a worship service, and uh, we're out there on the porch. And what, what do you know? The roof just blows right off the building. Uh, big piece of lumber hits Amanda. Uh, you know, people are running, crying. They're wet. Everything. My guitar's getting. My dad's guitar is getting soaked. Um, you know, it's quite an interesting experience. Uh, all our sleeping bags are soaked, wet, you know, and people are huddled and cold and just, it was, you know, great. Um, it was a great experience. And um, they put us in the other building for the night. And I, just, I can't tell you how much these people just cared for us and um, just bent over backwards to, um, you know, it, it wasn't their mud huts that they were concerned about, you know. It wasn't the water rushing through their village that they were concerned about. It was us. And um, they, we were a gift to them. And I'll never forget the following morning, uh, looking out the window early in the morning, and, you know, we're all sleeping in till like, 6. Uh, and um, we look out, and I see some, some men kind of, you know, looking around on the ground and bending over, picking things up and, you know, little things. And I'm thinking, what are they doing? And... I go out and I have a look, and they're picking up nails that came off the roof, and they're bending them back because they have to fix this roof now. You know, I'm thinking, well, you know, get new nails. You know, it's easy. It's easy. Well, they don't have any money for new nails, you know. So I, that really humbled me to think that they don't have enough money to buy nails. And uh, we ended up going into town and getting them a sack of nails, you know. I think it was like a nickel. And, uh, you know, that was, wow, hey, new nails. What do you know? And they were able to fix their roof because... Um, because we bought them new nails. And it struck me that morning about how much we have and how little they have 
yet how much they cared for us and uh, how much they went out of their way to uh, to put us up for six weeks. Um, we are reminded of the verse, um, whatever whatever you do to the least of these, you have done to me. And we kind of went in there thinking, hey, that's going to be us. You know, we're going to help out these poor people. And actually, it helped us out. Uh, it, it was reciprocal where um, we were the least, and, and they helped us. And I went away feeling like I had... Uh, I went away feeling like I had been uh, witnessed to for six weeks rather than me going down and witnessing to them for six weeks. So that's a little experience of mine. Thanks. All right, to start, a few quick descriptions of our Honduras trip. Sunrises at 4.45 a.m., the huge generator named Grace, the hurricane, Urus con leche, humility, sugar cane, bass in the river, scorpions, no electricity, simplicity, and Salma, our Honduran mother, singing all the time, laughter, servanthood, sweat, and all too familiar picks and shovels, showers in the rain, beans, rice, and tortillas every meal, and of course, peanut butter relief. Um, what I want to talk about is just how the Pesh had an impact on our life and how special they were, as Dave has already hit on. But as, our, as a team, before we went down there, we really wanted to be sensitive to their culture and seeing what was the best way for us to share God's love, but more importantly, to share God's love with them and not to bring our Western ideas over to them, but to be immersed in their culture. And that was kind of, that was kind of a tough thing to do because one of our ideas of sharing God's love was putting on church services. And actually, I think that wasn't the way God wanted us to do it. Because every time we tried to do a church service, it ended up raining. And the rain would be so hard that it would come down and the tin roof and be so loud that you couldn't even hear anyone speaking. And then, of course, there was a hurricane and it blew the roof completely off and stopped the service immediately. And, um, but rather, God wanted us to show our love with them by participating in their culture and doing the simple things, like working alongside the Peshmen in the trench and picking and shoveling with them and stopping to rest and having a short conversation with them and um, being able to sit behind the schoolhouse and talk with them and listen and share our cultures together as the sun went down or um, making tortillas with the women in the kitchen. And so it was just to the simple things and sharing their lifestyle. And um, the basic thing is that those people have don't have much materially, but they have so much wealth and in their creation and the creation that's around them that God has put them in and things they realize that they realize appreciation and they have appreciation for the creation that they're in and um, every, every time I would ask them you know like are, do you love where you live and they'd always say yes we love the trees and the mountains and they totally had an appreciation for that and they understood that they had great wealth and because in the United States we get so distracted by the overconsumption that we have in our fast place fast-paced lifestyles. And so after being there for six weeks and the past really serving us, I came back to want to be able to change the way I did things here in the United States. And um, the one thing is they were so devoted to us, like David said. The ladies would work in the kitchen to prepare our food, and they'd be in there all day to make breakfast, lunch, and dinner for us. And they'd do our laundry, and they'd take it on their heads and walk down to the river, which is about a half an hour walk, and walk back up with it all wet, which is, makes it a lot heavier. And the thing is, they do it with such joy. They would sing, and there's one time we had gone down to the river to go visit um, some of the houses down there. 
and there are a couple of us that were left there remaining with the people who were washing the clothes and the, the ladies. And we walked back, and it was just really neat to be able to sing together in their language, to sing praise songs to God. And um, so one thing about the trip is that it was full of challenges, um, both mentally, physically, and spiritually. Um, but they had to be rooted in faith, flexibility, and perseverance because things always would change in the trip. You wouldn't quite know what to, to expect. And the plans weren't always definite. And with things like a hurricane coming through, and being able to be flexible. And one last point I wanted to make about being there is that, as Dave talked about the hurricane, and that night when the hurricane came, we had a decision as a team whether we wanted to go to a hotel and stay the night where we could be dry or to stay with the Pesh in the village that night. And um, as a team, we, we unanimously decided to stay with them. And I think that was probably the most crucial decision we could have made because that was the way we were truly showing God's love and to really be there for them. Because a lot of times we wouldn't really be taking part of their culture and their experience if we wouldn't have stayed. And for them, that was a chance for them to really see, see how much we cared for them and were concerned about them. But, but with that, um, I still think they gave so much to us and gave so much to me to think about my own life. And in closing, I just wanted to read a short excerpt from my journal um, after we had left the village. Leaving the village was a very sad thing for me. I don't think I have ever felt such sadness when saying goodbye. The fact that I knew I was probably never going to see these people again made it extra hard. Yet I do hope to return. The image of all the pests standing in the open field as we drove away with Nate holding the back door open is so distinct and vivid. I cried upon leaving and it touched my heart. These people are so special, so genuine. I love the Pesh. And as the Pesh would say, Kaparkoa, that's thank you. Let me just mention if you're interested in exploring this, I think it's interesting. Uh, what Dave said that, you know, he didn't know he was being led by the Spirit. And I think that's often the case. Some of you may be being led to be a part of this this summer. Let me just mention four ways you can learn about it. Uh, one is there's a leadership seminar this Thursday at 12 noon in the Monroe Dining Room. And it'll be about the Honduras uh, trip. And the Alternative Chapel credit will be given for that. Um, there's also a display right out here when you leave chapel. And if you have an interest in either of the trips, Honduras or Guatemala, just put an H or a G if you know which one. If you're not sure, just put HG down there and we'll get somebody in touch with you on the back of your card. And um, anybody that was up here today, feel free to just talk to about the project. Being led by the Spirit. Those folks were led by the Spirit. They were probably, if we could have talked to all ten of them, they would have each been led a different way, but I think they would have been led by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? Elijah was led by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. He was led in the way that most of us know about to take on all the prophets of this corrupt religion where they worship the god Baal or Baal who was supposed to be the god of agriculture, the god of weather, and, and human sacrifices may have been made to this god. 
And the king of Israel had turned the whole nation into worshiping this god Baal. And Elijah decided to confront all the prophets led by the Spirit. And I'd like to put a scene on the screen here for a moment. This is a painting, or actually a wood cutting, called Elijah and the Prophets of Baal by Julius Schnorr, German artist. It was produced in about 1860. And in this picture you see the climax of the story where he has taken on the 400 prophets of Baal and 400 other prophets and he's taken them on in a contest. But what you don't see is what led up to this. So I want to back up just a bit and briefly tell you something that happened before this contest took place and then close by telling you what happened in this contest. Before this contest took place, thank you, before this contest took place, if uh, I'd really like to ask whoever it is right up in the bleachers there who's shining the, the laser thing, if you would quit doing that, I'd really appreciate it. It's pretty immature. So let me get my train of thought back. So Elijah, before this happened, told the king, who was leading the people in all this bad worship, he told the king there's going to be a famine in the land, and only when I give the word will the famine cease. And so the Lord told him, Look, leave here, go eastward and hide in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan, and you'll drink from the brook, and I've ordered the ravens to feed you. So Elijah did what the Lord told him to do. He went there. And lo and behold, ravens brought him food, the brook gave him water, even though there was a drought, and things seemed to be working fine. He was led by the Spirit, and he did it. But then the brook dried up. So he had to be wondering, well, Wait a minute, I thought you were going to feed me with this brook and things were going to work out. And then the Spirit of the Lord said to him, Go go at once to the town of Zarephath on Sidon and stay there. I've commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went. He heard the word. He was attuned to hearing the inaudible. And he went and he did it. But interestingly, he didn't find a widow who quickly said, Oh, you're the one that God was sent here and I'm supposed to supply with food. Actually, he sees the woman. He says, "Uh, Would you please give me a drink of water? She goes to get a drink of water. It's in the middle of a drought. And he says, Now, but would you also give me some bread? And she says, Sir, look, my my son and I are going to eat the last bread we have. And then we decided we would just die because there's no more bread. And he says, Make the bread, but give the first piece to me. So this didn't work out the way, exact way he would have pictured. The widow comes up to him, God put it on my heart, Elijah, to feed you. No, he had, to, he had to sort of tell her to do it. And she did it. Something in her heart on the other side must have felt the leading of the Holy Spirit. And she did it. She gave him the food and then he said, don't be afraid. She gave him the food and he said, the Lord God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up, the jug of oil will not run dry, until the day the Lord gives rain on this land. So she went away and did as Elijah told her. And that's what happened. They had food for every day. 
There's another story that happened during that time that I'm going to tell later about prayer, where her son died. And we learned a great lesson on prayer through that. And then finally, in the third year, he'd been doing this for three years. He'd been quiet, alone, with simple, quiet obedience. We don't know what he was doing during that time, except hiding from the king who wanted to kill him because he brought this drought on. And in those three years of quiet obedience, apparently, the Holy Spirit led him to move toward this confrontation, where through Obadiah, he told the king, get all your prophets together on a mountain, I'll tell you about, on Mount Carmel, and you get all your prophets, and then get all the people of Israel to come, and we'll have a contest, and we'll find out if the Lord is God, which is Elijah's name, by the way, Elijah, the Lord is God. He says, we'll find out if Baal is God or the Lord is God. So he gets them all around there, and he says, build yourselves a little altar, and then put a sacrifice on it, and then pray to Baal and ask him to bring down fire on your altar. And then I'll build a little altar, and I'll do the same thing, and the God that answers by fire, that will be the Lord. But before he does that, he says to the people something amazing. Now he's moved from quiet obedience into confrontational and dramatic obedience. And he says, before all the people, they're all lined up there. The 800 prophets are there. They've, they're getting ready to dance. They've got their costumes on. It's just Elijah and all of them and all the people of Israel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. He says, we're going to figure it out today. We're not going to waver anymore. I want, and it says the people were silent. They wanted to see what happened first. Well, Elijah was not quietly obedient. He was loudly obedient. He said, you guys go first. You, you, you've got the great God, so you, you go on. He got very sarcastic with them. And so they, they put their, their wood on the altar and they put their sacrifice there. And, and then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. So they danced around the altar they'd made. And at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Why don't you shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Shout a little louder so he can hear you. Or maybe he's busy. Maybe he's busy or traveling. And actually, some scholars say he uses a rather crude expression that means maybe he's gone off to the bathroom. You need to kind of shout to your God a little louder to get him to actually... Very harsh, very crude, very sarcastic, very confrontational. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice came. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him. He built his altar with 12 stones representing each of the 12 tribes. And then he said, with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he dug a trench around it large enough to, to hold two seahs of seed and he arranged the wood and he cut the bull, the animal for sacrifice, into pieces, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering. They're in the middle of the drought. He gets four large jars, pours it all over the bull that's been slaughtered and is on the wood, all over the wood. Then he says, do it again. Then he says, do it again. Twelve jars of water until the trench was filled with water. Soaked wood, soaked 
sacrifice. And then he says a simple prayer. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you're God, that you're God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. He was being led by the Spirit. And that I have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. Then fire from of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. Burned up the wood. Burned up the stones. And burned up the soil. And licked up all the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate. And they said, Elijah, the Lord is God. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. That's what this scene is by this artist. I don't know what to make of that. I thought God said, Do not kill. I'm troubled by the scene. Elijah, the prophet of God, he has a sword in his hand. There's one dead prophet at his feet. Others are being held. You can still see the flames soaring up into the air in the background from the, from the sacrifice. This tremendous confrontation. Two types of being led by the Holy Spirit. One says, go to a brook and you'll be fed by ravens. Go to the widow and you'll be fed by her. Wait for three years until I tell you what to do. Quiet obedience. But the second leading of the Spirit was a dramatic and confrontational event. All of it from the Holy Spirit. Well, what do we make of that? Well, we make one thing of it, at least I do, and that is that the Holy Spirit's hard to figure out. That He is. 